Good day, mate. Forty here. So one of the uh, the biggest stories I ever broke was in 2007 when I got a tip that the mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Villaraigosa, had uh, stopped wearing his his wedding ring. And you know, a bloke in public life stopped wearing his wedding ring for months at a time. Right? Uh, you'd think that people would take notice, and so. Turned out that the mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Villaraigosa, was having an affair with a newsreader on a Spanish language TV station that uh, his marriage had, marriage had effectively ended months before. And a lot of journalists knew about this, but they wouldn't report it because they just thought it was too dirty. But uh, this was the first Latino mayor of Los Angeles in many, many years, and they felt kind of protective of him. They didn't want to say anything gross. And uh, then the story blew up and became the number one story in Los Angeles for the year 2007. And that was effectively the end of Antonio Villaraigosa's, not just that, that marriage, but his political career. Now we've got a new Speaker of the House, right, Kevin McCarthy. And he is publicly not wearing his wedding ring. He is publicly very affectionate with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right? They seem to have a very physical relationship, and uh, nobody wants to seem to talk about it. It's just too gross, right? The picture, you know, Kevin McCarthy and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene hooking up. But this is the under news, guys. This is what's really going on in the world. This is this is why you come to Forty to you know find out the real story, and that's why you also go to people like uh, Chuck Charles Johnson. So. Charles Johnson reminds me a lot of that uh, journalist they made a movie about. And he published a story in the San Jose Mercury News about how the CIA was funding the importation of cocaine into South Central Los Angeles to fund the Contras. Now, there, there were one or two important parts of that story that were false. Right? Kill the Messenger. Was that the name of the book and the name of the movie? There were a couple of parts of that story that are not accurate, but the journalist, right, he nailed a lot of the story. He just needed a good editor, and he didn't get good editing. And so too with Charles Johnson. I think he nails a lot of under news, and he is also at times irresponsible and needs a good editor. So Charles Johnson is friends with Congressman Matt Gates. Charles Johnson introduced Matt Gates to his wife. Uh, you know, Charles Johnson is a real player and he is simultaneously a fringe dissident figure. So he's an interesting bloke and I would never just, you know, accept something he says as gospel. Uh, at the same time, I would never automatically deny something that uh, Charles Johnson said just because it comes from that notorious troll Charles Johnson. I think he's still... All right. How are you guys doing? Come on, man. What's today's topic? All right, this is Richard Spencer in dialogue. Talk about why he was firmly in support of Gates on that one. I mean, I offered my support in the sense that I found the whole thing comical. Comical and maybe just as well. Like, you know, in the sense of McCarthy endorses Trumpism and, and January 6th after the revolution failed and just wants to ride the donkey but then not pay the price or something like that. Well, I, I, don't think know. Gets, I, I think Gets has 
what's, how you pronounce his last name? Is it Matt Gates? Matt or Gates? Gates, yeah. He has his own agenda, whole political agenda, but I think it's sort of funny how he just threw like. Yeah, Matt Gates has now become you know, one of the most talked about Republicans in the country. He was previously an object of derision for you know, being faced with uh, child trafficking or sex trafficking accusations, which ultimately were never brought. Uh, he was known for years essentially just as a Trump toady. And uh, now he's increasingly looked like a real political force in his own right, uh, coming to prominence for opposing Kevin McCarthy as House of Representatives Speaker. A spanner in the works, right? Like, <laughs> but I, I just wanted to be like, you know, talking to some of my uh, boomer conservative relatives, just like listening to them to vetch, you know? <laughs> I'm like, bad for the party. This I'm is just like, conservatives like, everywhere. I'm listening to this from Italy, like, walls. Yeah, exactly. that's basically how I felt. Um, the other thing that's of interest is the J6 phenomenon is clearly a global phenomenon. Um, and the, there, there are obviously just so many connections between... Right. And, and part of that is just like being a criminal and you know, doing protests, right? That's not uniquely American. Right? I, I don't think that there are powerful figures behind the scenes who are driving the January 6th and the Brasilia protests. Right. It's you know, a lot of idiots acting out and then maybe some smarter people thinking, how do we take advantage of this, this energy? So I don't agree with, uh, with Charles Johnson's more con- conspiratorial perspective. It's between what happened in Brazil this past weekend and um, January 6th, although the Brazilian one was a kind of pale echo in a way. It, uh, there was nothing going on in Brasilia at the time. They're kind of cool, modern, hyper-modernist capital building. Um, there was nothing actually going on, so there was no ste- uh, st- there was no steel to stop, as it were. And um, whereas Trump was really directly engaged, uh, Bolsonaro was actually in Florida, apparently being hospitalized for a stomach issue. So, uh, is, it, is it wrong to suggest that maybe Brazilian coup attempt was, uh, shall we say, lazy? Is that, is that too yes, typical? That's uh, wrong. Sort of did it after the new president was already sworn in. It's kind of a, kind of a kind of an error, a category error in coup. It was like an ex post facto coup. Yeah. Well, I think the, the better word is chill, not lazy. Like, you know, it's, it's a chill. They're chillaxed doing their coup. Yeah. That's how I would describe it. What's much cooler. interesting about all these, all these uh, attempts is all the, all the people with cameras, they, like, run in and they take pictures of everything. And it's just so um, it's so of our time, right, that, like, I am going to record myself running right. in my building committing a crime. <laughs> I think that this will go well for me, you know? <laughs> Whatever happened, but, like... The 80s style, like successful coup, like, or like the Pinochet coup, or like Argentinian helicopter rides. Like, none of that stuff happens now. You know? Oh, no, au contraire, my friend. I mean, that stuff happens all the time all throughout Africa. It's just oh, done uh, in all sorts of subtle ways by the United States and by other players. I think yeah. correct. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not, as, it's not as thematic, right? It's right. not as like, um, you know, it's not like the movies. It's more like, oh, we're going to shave a percentage point off here or there in this specific county because we control all the voting machines in Democratic Republic of Congo, say, right? It's like that kind of thing. Right. Look, that only goes on in, in Africa. It doesn't go on in, in our blessed country. And this tribe's become a little inconvenient, so we're just going to hack them all to death. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there's, there's a real honest goodness war going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo right now, in large measure being fought by the United States and Britain against uh, Netanyahu and Paul Kagame and all that over all the rare earths that are in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So, I, mean, I, I, I just want to say, I'm not that posting, I meant that, as, you know, just. As no, no, that's quite all right. I mean, the feds, the feds know me, and let me tell you, it's much better. I prefer having them as customers than, than as uh, persecutors. So um, if, we could, if we could keep it in that. 
So, yeah, I don't agree with everything you know, Charles Johnson says. You know, maybe overstating his own uh, credentials and uh, his own power and influence. Now, on the other hand, he is a player. He is incredibly smart and interesting guy. So this is uh, Charles Johnson in dialogue with Richard Spencer. And, uh, you know, I'd rather um, be funded by the police rather than defund them. Just, just to be uh, to be technical, as my sort of day job is to build companies that do a lot of work with the U.S. intelligence and law enforcement communities. So, um, you know, that, that sort of gives you kind of my, my view on this. And, 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 you know, in the spirit of full disclosure, you know, I have, I have publicly, you know, Clearview AI, which is a company I, I helped to co-found, you know, I've called for them to make the facial recognition technology more widely available to civic society in Brazil and elsewhere to kind of identify who all these people were that, that sort of stormed the, um, what is it, it's like the Palicia, or what, what the hell is the thing they actually Brasilia, it's, it's like a modernist utopian vision of a future society that looks kind of like a 1960s sci-fi movie. I've always found it. And I've been there. I've been there before when I was quite young, when I was like 17 or so. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just all I remember from it is just how terribly hot it was, and how giant the mosquitoes were, and how there was so little shade anywhere. And so when I was seeing all the photos, I'd actually been to that building many years ago because my uncle was in the intelligence community, and we went down there. And um, it, it was very interesting because we were sort of like walking around, and of course it's just kind of like. You know, it's Brazil, so no one's like really working. Like, but they all make like the attempts to appear like they're working. And then, of course, you have the government, you know, government worker kind of overlay onto that, right? Which is also like notorious for not working. But it's in like the middle of Brazil, like it's like way away from Rio or Sao Paulo. All of us you'd want to go in Brazil, like it's so far removed from that. Okay, do you guys remember Josh Randall? He was a you know, moderator, a major supporter of the show, and uh, yeah, good, good bloke. You know, I called him many times just to just to schmooze, and uh, about. Was it about a year ago? He came on the show, and he was in a bad mood. And he'd earlier warned me that he falls out with you know every every YouTube channel that he ever joins and supports. And uh, he's in a bad mood, and he was saying that uh, the world is run essentially by intelligence agencies and bankers. Right? It's intelligence agencies and bankers. They they run the world. They they pull the string the strings, and. Uh, and I said, you know, I don't think that's true. I think that's just an exciting uh, conspiracy theory to, to make your life, you know, more exciting and meaningful and to, you know, feel superior to, you know, other people who take, take the world at more face value. And he went off, like he sent me a text message, like, don't psychoanalyze me. Now, let's get out of here. He said to Laponius, let's get out of here. Now, this place is, is trash. He's never returned to the channel. But anyway, I'm just thinking about his his view that intelligence agencies run the world. And you do see with the release of the Twitter files that how influential intelligence agencies are in, in daily life. They're a little more influential, moderately more influential than, than I thought. I mean, I didn't realize that American intelligence agencies were contacting Twitter and social media companies they're asking them to take down posts. So it's, just very, it's a very interesting place because it's sort of like um, it's trying to be something that it's not really capable of being. Brazilian. Exactly. You know, it's, it's trying to be the future as, as imagined in the mid-20th century. And so there's a certain kind of irony to it. There's also kind of interesting juxtaposition between the famous, you know, touchdown Jesus statue a note around the world and this hyper-modernist capital. There's, there's a lot going on. So I am currently in Marubra. All right, so in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, you hear a lot of uh, dissidents. They have no reason for them to fear you that you don't eat them. 
So I noticed that a lot of people on the right tell me that Lula is far left, you know, a communist. But when I read the New York Times, the mainstream media, I see Lula, the current leader of Brazil, described as a center-left uh, centrist, kind of like Biden. So is, is Lula, you know, far-left commie or centrist? Inquiring minds want to know. Very, you know, 2023 um, or 2020, which is this weird contradiction between... We're revolutionaries, but also we're not. And we're storm the Capitol, but we're also going to film ourselves. I mean, I noted that Nate Delasco was actually sentenced to 60 days in prison recently. And he was... Today, today in fact, yeah. Today, yes, yeah. today. And he was live streaming himself. What, wasn't he in Nancy Pelosi's office? I think that's right, yeah. Or somewhere about that. So he's, he's, you know, documenting the crime. And then, you know, afterwards, there's a lot of talk from him or supporters of, you know... Nate Delasco was sentenced to 60 days in prison for walking into a public building or something. So it's this weird ambiguity where, on the one hand, it is a joke. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that it was a joke. They're there doing it for the walls and putting their feet up on the desk or calling, using her phone, or whatever the hell they were doing. Uh, but then, on the other hand, it is clearly a, like, it was clearly an, a, a, I don't want to say coup, but an attempt to cease government, cease the progress of government. And then also, it was, but it's, so, it's so functionally illiterate about how the government works, right? Like, yes. as if you could just, like, take over a building and, like, somehow you would be in power, right, in the United States of America, or even in Brazil, for that matter, right? Exactly. It's, such, it's such a weird idea, you know, that, like, the power resides in the building and not in the institutions. You know, right. Or the power resides in, the, in a mob. Like, so much of what Trump, I mean, even if you take Trump's words charitably, what he wanted to do was march with his supporters arm in arm to the Capitol, basically discourage Mike Pence from going through with it, and encourage the Trumpians in Congress to take his side. And you, you, hear, it a lot, you, hear, you hear a lot of this from, like, J6 apologists, where, where they're like, well, yeah, it got out of hand, and... You know, the, the function of government went forward. But, you know, the government should look at all these angry people and, and, and learn from that. Like, they can't put Joe Biden in office. Or, you know, it's this, this kind of like, yeah, very illiterate and kind of naive and hokey, like, notion of, of government. Well, I mean, there is a certain sense in which this is being taken very seriously and in which, you know, what is that, that old Charles, you know, Tully thing or Tully thing about how the state is a monopoly on the use of, of violence? Sure. Right? And, and there is something kind of violent about breaking and entering and you know, defecating, you know, and making open answers for no question, right? So, so I think to my mind, so for, for one thing, I mean, there is a certain sense in which, like, the January 6th event and the January 8th event in Brazil is a form of kind of weaponized mental illness. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, like, Netanyahu was in power when both incidents took place. Um, I think that needs to be kind of understood in a serious kind of way because Netanyahu. I like that, that uh, January 6th was uh, weaponized mental illness. I think that's pretty funny. I don't think it was a coup. I don't think it was an insurrection. It was a riot. Does a lot of the bidding of players like China and Russia, and of course, you know, organized crime, which has its you know, tentacles all throughout, you know, Ukraine and Hungary, and of course into Israel itself. So, and, you know, you see the sort of shaman figure who emerges, right? Yeah. The QAnon shaman, and then of course the Bolsonaro, you know, shaman figure. And there's something just very. Um, you know, you know, uh, the Israelis and Emiratis meet with Governor DeSantis, right, like a week before Bolsonaro goes to, like, his Orlando Publix and is, like, eating Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so there's a certain sense in which, like, Florida is a sort of, like, respectable face of this sort of global international criminal syndicate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not lost on me that the Bolsonaros are trying to get Italian citizenship. They are, I think, on, I think they're, like, half Italian or part Italian. And, of course, there's a new kind of populist, you know, prime minister lady there in Italy now who has her through, you know, her through line with this sort of organized crime world. So I think we sort of need to understand this as kind of a transnational, you know, network that operates. And one of the ways it operates is by sort of polluting the discourse with bots, you know. Uh, Wait a second. If it's, if it's mental illness, then mental illness in action, then it's not transnational. 
You know, it's not some transnational organization. So he says, you know, it's organized crime. It's basically, you know, an organized crime mob. And it's mental illness in action. And it's also, you know, the Republican Party big players in action. So can it really be all these things at once? Human form, and I suppose the robot form. You know, that what they're trying to do is sort of like pollute the information ecosystem so that our sense-making apparatus is quite, is quite impoverished. Um, oh, so that's not what the left is doing, right? When they're trying to redefine language and uh, change words and, uh, you know, dominate the high gra- ground of culture. It's, uh, it's not because the left is engaging in semantic warfare. Well, I guess one difference is, oh, the left is not, you know, trying to pollute the discourse. They're just trying to elevate the discourse. They're trying to educate. Yep, just uh, conspiracy theory is not even worthy of theory. Okay, I can't, uh, can't uh, argue with that. But uh, Charles Johnson here talking with Richard Spencer about pollution, discourse pollution. Probably make a pretty good argument that this is discourse pollution. And the state, of course, has all these other weapons at its disposal, facial recognition, satellite technology, uh, to say nothing of sort of like the hacking tools that can be deployed on on people's phones. Um, and so there's a certain sense in which like the state is like much, much stronger than these people's att- feeble attempts to sort of like, you know, cause cause chaos. Um, but I do think that there's a certain sense in which like the chaos is kind of the point and to try to like get everyone fighting is kind of the point. And, you know, yeah. when we last spoke, I mentioned the Wang Huning stuff about America versus America, America against America. Wang Huning, you know, being the third, being the most popular person in China, talks an awful lot about triggering civil wars in other countries by basically getting everyone to fight with one another. And there's a certain sense in which like that is very much a feature of the modern era that basically people... Yeah, it would make sense that Russia and China and America's competitors and enemies would want to encourage, you know, movements in America that weaken America. So I don't think that's terribly surprising. Tribally crew up, they then go to battle against one another, whether it's physically in the form of the Proud Boys and the Antifa or whether or not it's in the sort of, like, you know, information landscape that we see playing out on Twitter, she'll own Twitter, how she'll be funded that they own Twitter, all that kind of question. So I guess what I would just say, like, thinking about this, is I think January 6th was a sort of failure of, of our system, of basically being rational, being sensible, and then the January 7th inauguration of, you know, Kevin McCarthy, who is himself, like, very obviously a part of this transnational organized crime syndicate, um... Yeah, now I find that just bizarre, you know, a huge overstatement, like without sufficient evidence that like Kevin McCarthy and Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are all part of this like international crime syndicate. All right. I think that is completely out to lunch, meaning that there's no evidence provided for these wild accusations. And so this is this is unreasonable and irresponsible, I think, of uh, Charles Johnson. But uh, he's he's fun to listen to because. Out of out of that nonsense, there are also some good points. Look at like all the fraud he's committed over the years, directing state monies to himself through having his brother-in-law claim to be Native American, so he and his wife can get paid for blowing this construction company. I mean, it's just like basic bitch, you know, kind of mob tactics that you see, and they're just on full display. And whether that's always been there, which I somewhat suspect, or whether we're just sort of being more aware of it because of the nature of the open source research world or the cell phone proliferation, the camera proliferation, I couldn't say. But it does seem to me like we're entering this kind of new new moment, and it's. I think we'll look back on this year, basically based on the last two years, as basically the same way that people look back upon, say, 
you know, 2008, around like 1991, even, you know, with the fall of the Soviet Union. Seems like things are getting very scrambled in real time, and the playbooks are being rewritten. And uh, that is, I think, um, just an extremely exciting time to really think about what's what's going on. And, uh, and I don't know, you know, my basic read on it is that the state, like, can't lose, but that the, that we are discovering that we have a lot of weaponized mentally ill people within our country that are actual security threats, whereas previously they would just, like, yell at their fo- at Fox News or they would, yeah. like, you know, complain in the comments section. They're actually, like, getting out and doing things, and that's kind of disturbing, to put it mildly. Yeah, let me, let me, before you go on, let me jump in on that, because I, you know, what is propaganda is a very interesting question, and... You know, there, I've mentioned this before on, on other talks. Uh, Jacques Ellul has a very interesting book on propaganda. He was writing in the 20th century, so he kind of imagined propaganda as necessary for technological society. Propaganda is the 5 p.m. nightly news where Walter Cronkite tells you, you know, what... Look, this society sets meaning. Sets meaning for the word marriage, for, for military. So it used to be marriage was a heterosexual institution. It used to be that our military was a heterosexual institution. And now our society has radically changed that. So for the first time in human history, essentially, you know, we're now defining marriage as something that can occur between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. Uh, we've now redefined our, our military service to be uh, something that's no longer a heterosexual institution. So society is constantly changing the meaning of words and the meaning of what it is to be a good person and a good citizen. down what's left what's right he kind of gives you a frame of reference and it it, it kind of it, it can maintain order i mean with a technological and urbanized society we're, we don't have peasants out in the land going to a cathedral and worshiping something that they barely understand we're, we're now we need them to work nine to five and so we, we need to kind of organize people in a new way to make this thing work otherwise it really won't um now we obviously have like another the, the more popular version society do i mean commies no society uh, society sets the meaning so the primary value in America, for example, is freedom. That's not the primary value here in Australia. The primary value here is fairness. So there are all sorts of words that mean fair in Australia and New Zealand. Australia and New Zealand are societies dedicated to fairness. America is a society dedicated to freedom. And there are different understandings of freedom, but it comes from within society. It's not just commies who change the meaning of words and the meaning of institutions, all right? Uh, people on the right do that too, right? Society is what gives us our hero system. So if you're an American, you get your sense of transcendence in large part by being part of America. This is, this is something that's going to go on long past our lives. And we, you know, we can feel good that we're you know, part of uh, this, this world-dominating power. And we get meaning from enacting rituals like the 4th of July, talking about the Declaration of Independence, we're talking about the Constitution, you know, this is a society dedicated to, you know, freedom and liberty, all right? It's society that sets the terms of, you know, what most of us take for granted. Again, it's just lies. So let's say there's a massive grain shortage in the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union puts out a propaganda, you know, statement in Pravda or something. Rain has never been more plentiful, you know, massive record-breaking harvest. And so people read that, and it's just like a direct contrast between reality and it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they start to, maybe they go insane, or maybe they believe it, or maybe they think to themselves, well, what am I doing wrong? Like, maybe I'm left out of this. I'm missing out on the bounteous profits. Like, the, the so-called hypernormalization, right, that they, right. they talk about, where, where everything is its opposite. And, yes. Uh, 
And I think that that is very much a feature of our time as well, right? Well, I think it's a little bit different, though, because I, I it's not a direct lie. Like, because I'm, and, and I'm not trying to defend, um, you know, Trumpism or Fox News or, or people spreading QAnon, QAnon or something. I'm not trying to defend them, but I'm... But yeah, Richard is nostalgic for the Trump era when he was a big deal. And it was an exciting time. Trying to understand them. But it's it's not like... You know, you're sitting there impoverished, starving, and then someone puts like a virtual reality goggles on your on your head, and they show you a picture of like a bounteous grain harvest, and they're like, "Eat up, eat, eat this digital wheat." It's not that insanely like obvious. It's different. Like they they call upon half truths and like ex- pre-existing anxieties. But as I but as you mentioned, there's a way in which it, it is a, there's a golem like quality to people where they can kind of put a word into this person's mouth, and then the golem kind of like is animated and walks around and kicks people's asses. So it's like. Yeah, as the chat says, you know, language continually evolves. Conservatives like to keep things the same. Commies are not conservative. Well, conservative ideology harkens back to a much better past, right? But conservatives are also changing meanings and changing words. So individuals, communities, societies are constantly, you know, evolving different meaning and different language and changing the meaning of language. There are pre-existing anxieties right now in the 21st century. There, there are pre-existing racial anxieties. There's no doubt about it. Demographic anxieties. There are generational anxieties. We have an older population. You know, how do we even understand these young people? Um, there are, uh, you know, cultural anxieties of that kind. Um, there are anxieties about not understanding uh, the national security state. You know, are we funding ISIS? Like, what, what's going on here? You know, uh, wh- why didn't we invade Syria, but then we're supporting these rebels who are Islamicists? I don't understand. Isn't that like some of it? A lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of understandable confusion about the world we live in and how this is going to operate. And I think what contemporary propaganda does is it it, it gets at some pre-existing anxiety and just presses. You know, it's like you have a little wound. You're, you're generally fine, but you have this big cut on your arm. And someone just comes and just presses on that cut, that wound, and, and you're kind of disabled. <laughs> so Richard has a much more exaggerated sense of the importance of propaganda than I do. So I hold with that French neuroscientist who wrote the terrific book, Not Born Yesterday, we did not evolve to be gullible, all right? We did not, you know, evolve to just, you know, take some, you know, nifty piece of propaganda and automatically accept it as true. Well, I'm really getting the sense here, people, that the tide is coming in and my position will eventually become perilous and I will need to retreat to higher ground. So maybe I should start building, building a strategic retreat things that you wouldn't otherwise do and so they'll, they'll call upon you know like a racial and our demographic racial anxiety and there's no solution offered but they'll call upon it and just activate people and so you have people who are like concerned about the change of generations or my town doesn't look the same people are speaking spanish and next thing you know they're invading the capital in a way on that on behalf of this cause or you know demographic anxiety is going crazy the great replacement but that kind of means that the election's stolen so they, they kind of like they take something that's true in a way and then press on that and kind of inflate it into something that is both untrue, but also kind of actionable, not in the legal sense, but in the sense of like, it will spur you to do something. You know, you, oh, you worry about it. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, what I would just say, so I, look, I think a lot of the January 6th thing happens because the COVID lockdowns happens, right? And yeah. the, the Black Lives Matter protests happens. And there's yes. a sort of thing with conservatives where they want to sort of be rebellious, right? They sort of want, they, they always talk about you know, Hunter Biden's crimes, but never, you know, Donald Trump's crimes, right? right? There's a certain like, you know, you do it too, two cock, you know, style argument. And which is, of course, like a fallacy, right? It doesn't really quite work. And so, you know, they, they're always, they're always basically like saying, well, well, you know, we also do these terrible things. And there's a sort of like, 
you know, session with Hunter Biden, right, who seemingly like enjoys himself a little too much, probably because of some measure of drug addiction and other issues, you know, probably dealing with the, the death of his beloved brother. So there's a certain sense in which like the conservative just wants to act out, right, just wants to misbehave. And you see this with like Hereticon, you know, Peter Thiel's out, outfit where they, they all hang out in Miami uh, and they sort of pretend to be cool and interesting, talking about interesting ideas. But it's all the same kind of warmed over libertarianism with the techno sheen, you know, yeah. for the modern era. Or you see it in the uh, Sam Bankman Freed of all the ugly people forming the polycule just to rip people off and like, you know, have sex out, out in the Bahamas. Right. So yeah. there's, there's a certain sense in which like the conservative basically wants to cut loose and like have a good time and be exciting. And, you know, you look over like the 2020 cycle. There are all these people who are like locked in their houses with their iPhones, watching Fox News, being sort of mesmerized, right? And like, let's be real here, like the Scotch Irish have always had a tendency to be mesmerized. That's what the revival meetings were about. I mean, there's a great, you know, Sinclair Lewis book about Elmer Gantry, who's a traveling salesman, who's essentially a con man, right? But he, but he ends, you know, he sort of LARPs as a revival preacher and kind of ultimately like becomes a true believer, like he converts himself in a way. And that is very much like American life right now, where you can LARP, you can dress up, right? You can cosplay as like some sort of revolutionary. And it's partly because, like, we actually don't need people to go work nine to five. Like, we actually function pretty well as a society with a whole lot of people basically, like, hopped up on opioids and, like, basically strung up. So, yeah, when it, I remember listening to a lecture on marketing, and it says you don't market to people as you are, as they are. You, you, you market to people as to what they aspire to be. And we aspire to be, you know, important. Would a, would a shark eat me if I went in? Uh, possibly, possibly. So yeah, it looks like the surface of the moon. But uh, I just find it's a tremendous source of energy to be right next to the ocean. Yeah, very little wind right now, which accounts for the, you know the high quality audio levels of this stream. Basically, you, kind of like pre-selected. By... And so the temperature is about seventy-six degrees Fahrenheit. So that's about uh, 24, 24, 48, about twenty-three, twenty-four degrees Celsius. Okay, you do hear the wind. It's very low, very, very weak wind right now. It's uh, about 5 p.m. Wednesday afternoon, January 11th, and uh, we're about 10 miles from the, the Sydney Opera House, 10 miles south. By, uh, you know, the QAnon cult and all these other weird psyops that are running against them through Twitter and Facebook. And whereas, like, you know, the, the U.S. government is trying to figure out how to get everyone checks in their bank accounts. We're trying to figure out, like, uh, you know, how we distribute everybody's food to Amazon. You know, Mark Zuckerberg and Professor Seth Jack Dorsey, we're just sort of... And you say, you bet the fish are biting. Well, there's a, there was an Australian singer named Slim Dusty, and he had a classic song, A Bad Day's Fishing Meets a Good Day's Working Anytime. Ignoring this, like, crazy psyop, which is fun and exciting and kind of related, like, more exciting. And uh, Slim Dusty also had another Aussie classic, G'day, 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 G'day. Walking down the street, buying a paper, having a smoke, 
and uh, just saying g'day, g'day, g'day. What's the number one selling Mark Shapiro book in Australia? Um, changing the Immutable. Being present at January 6th. Um, and you know, there, there's sort of all these crazy people that show up to document things, to photograph things. Um, you know, at least of which is probably our own, kind of like complicated, you know, intelligence services. I mean, it is, it is, you know, kind of like the canard that Aaron goes on about like the Fed's direction. But it's undoubtedly clear that there were Feds there as well, right? That, that there were sort of like members of our own intelligence apparatus. It was, they were also kind of warping as law enforcement to a certain extent when they weren't warping as federal informants, right? Or right. as, uh, so, so there's a certain sense which is like a giant leg. And it's sort of participatory, it's very postmodern. And it's ultimately um, kind of extremely participatory in a way that I think democracy on the whole is kind of not. You know, it's sort of like, you know, you go, 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 So I've been polluted by some of my, you know, past uh, past journalistic beats. So I get to a, a beautiful place like this, and I immediately think, ah, oh, this would be a great place to, you know, shoot a scene from a movie. So I don't know. My sense, just like kind of looking it over on the two-year anniversary, is I think the intelligence services want this to be like another 9/11 or sort of Pearl Harbor, if you will, and. Perhaps that's the case. Like, perhaps we saw, like, a number of, like, intelligence agencies, domestic intelligence agencies that were penetrated by foreign actors. It certainly seems that way. Like, the Secret Service, the DHS agents that were there, participating in the sort of, like, you know, insurrection, if you want to call it that. Um, but I guess the issue is, like, there really wasn't that much loss of... Yes, I read that Ron Jeremy's being ruled unfit to stand trial due to, di- to, due to dementia, and I uh, have no insight on that. I never, never witnessed any dementia... With, with Ron Jeremy, but I haven't had any interactions with him since uh, 2007. Awesome life, right? I mean, you have Ashley Babbitt, the sort of crazy person who was shot in the head. You have, it was like the only real casualty. I mean, I suppose you could argue that the officers who like died or committed suicide afterwards were sort of ancillary, you know, answer. Yeah, it's hard not to argue that to me. I, I, when conservatives push back on that, I mean, these, a lot of these people died of heart attacks or suicide the day of or days yeah, after. I, it's hard not to argue that. That wasn't directly. Yeah, I mean, obviously, but like, you think- yeah, but it's not the same as they were killed, right? Someone who commits suicide or, you know, dies of a heart attack in a time of extreme stress, uh, you can't say that they were killed by January 6th. You can say that January 6th played a role. You think about just a very large group of people, right, mm-hmm. converging on a particular place, right? And, like, there are going to be heart attacks and suicides thereafter, just like, just by sheer numbers, right? If you have, right, you know, so, so my, my, my point is, like, our security apparatus wants this to be another 9-11. Um, and, you know, to some extent, I think there's some cases to be made. But but the problem is that the counterintelligence technologies and things that need to be done require basically peering into, uh, you know, to the psyche or even maybe even the souls of some of the people who were there. And that is a place that is, like, very difficult to get at with modern technology. Right? Like, how do you understand, like, the heiress who flies there, right, with her, like, private, 
like what are the most ex exotic sites used for you know, illicit purposes? Well, they're like photographers who you know get nude people to you know pose all over the world. So like the South Pole, the North Pole, the Antarctica, the Arctic, uh, the Western Wall, God forbid, uh, the, the Louvre. All right, so there's this photographer and he found he got the most opposition and the most law enforcement pushback when he tried to do, you know, nude photos in first world countries and he got the, the least pushback in non-first world countries. So he got a very quick law enforcement response in France. So in Bondi Beach, which is about uh, eight miles north of here, the photographer got permission from the city council. They changed the law so that about 2,000 people could gather naked to pose for a photograph. Maybe used to oppose global warming or something. How do you understand, like, the bored 80-year-old guy who scaled the wall, like, you know, in a, in a, in a feat of, like, daring do or whatever? Like, how do you really understand these people? And I think you have to understand it as, like, this sort of, like, crazed American id, you know, coming to rest in a, in this, like, crazy moments because we just had elected this crazy president. And then we're basically now in a moment where the intelligence services have, have used Joe Biden, um, you know, who has always been an ally of theirs, and has basically, they have basically reasserted control. And so we are now living in a kind of, like, society where we, we talk about democracy a lot, um, but like we all kind of know that the intelligence services in our country really call the shots. And we see that with the Twitter files, right? Like however one feels about Elon Musk being compromised. And you know, I've, I've written about that, I've talked about it. Yeah, this is, this is an interesting perspective about how interpenetrated the intelligence agencies are with our lives. There is a certain sense in which people understand now, in a way that they probably didn't understand before, how much our intelligence services are involved in everyday life. And I think that that is what makes this moment very exciting and very interesting. And, and of course, it's, it's consistent with 1991. Yeah, porn people normal. No, not really. All right, you may not necessarily notice all sorts of pathologies upon meeting them, but the, the number one distinguishing characteristic is that they lack human ties and connections. So if you have close ties with your family, you have close ties with your church, your synagogue, uh, your kin, your profession, your uh, educational institution, you know, your you know, ethnic, religious, any type of community, right? You have close friends, you're very unlikely to engage in, you know, pornography work. You know, become president, right? I mean, he was president for a while until, you know, Ross Perot was himself and compromised. You know, ran and makes the same thing as So there's, anyway, the, the point I'm trying to make is we are. So it's not that they're loners, they find community and connection in the porn industry, just like heroin addicts often refer to, you know, their fellow heroin addicts as a type of family. And uh, Charles Manson, right, he created a family. So you got a bunch of dysfunctional people who find solace with each other because you're all. They're similarly dysfunctional, and so the, the, you may feel the outside world is shunning you, so you create a new family within you know, the world of heroin, the world of drugs, the, the world of pornography, or you know, whatever illicit world is that you want to reside, you'll find your new family there. We are now in a, in a very new era, and what was exciting about the whole Gates, you know, McCarthy fight um, is that there's a sort of view that, like, hey, maybe the Congress can be participatory. Maybe we can actually be glued to these kind of fights. Maybe we can have real debates about subjects. But I think we kind of hold in our hearts that the whole thing is, that, that was a sort of performative kind of play as well. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, look, many people, if we transition a little bit too, which has happened this past week, I mean, 
many people made this criticism of Gates. What exactly do you want with these rule changes? You got in them in many ways. Like, who, who are you? Who, you want Trump the speaker? You want Biggs? What is this all about? Is it just is this purely personal? So no, violence isn't necessarily common among heroin addicts or you know porn people, but uh, you would expect it to be more common than among you know doctors, lawyers, and, and bankers. So you're dealing with a lot of people with low impulse control. Or purely narcissistic in the sense that, you know, for a week there, Matt Gates was on the lips of everyone who's politically engaged, which is a remarkable thing. Before this thing. moment, before this moment, right, my way, he just literally, Matt Gates just literally texted me, by the way, which was somewhat funny. Um, but, um, well, well, yeah, I mean, he might be listening. I don't know. I mean, he is, he is that narcissistic. I mean, I'm not going to yeah, Matt Gates is friends with Charles Johnson, who's speaking here with Richard Spencer. Yes, I can tell you that that is... I mean, all, the politicians are a special breed of narcissists because they just, I mean... It... Look, narcissism is usually not a condition. It is a state. It is a state, right, which is temporary. It's a state that depends upon situation. So if you're a politician, that is a particular state where you're going to be looking for applause and positive feedback and feel you know, somewhat entitled to you know, extra levels of, of admiration. Uh, so most narcissists are not chronically narcissistic. They are narcissistic with respect to certain things, such as their social media production, or their their position in the community, or their position in church or synagogue, or in business, or in sports, or in politics. Do I think the racial aspects of porn being propagated, or is it the culture? Well, there is a demand for kicks. You know, people you know demand things that get them excited so the pornography industry does not require you know high IQ specially trained people to produce its content it's uh, it's low IQ hard on fuel and it's largely responsive to what the consumer wants it never stops with a politician class it's like many of us have our moments where we're maybe a bit braggadocious or whatever but we, we also can like you know take the piss you know, on ourselves you know yeah. that, that's never the case with any of these politicians you never see it like so anyway, what, what I think, I mean, look, Kevin McCarthy is deeply corrupt, you know, Laura, Laura Loomer, others have made this point. I mean, I, I, you know, we could belabor it if we had to, but basically he's from, you know, essentially Bakersfield law territory. He's, a, you know, sort of a, a sort of, you know, working class kid who basically caught. I've never even heard of the Bakersfield mob. Do they whack a lot of people? Do, do you know anything about the Bakersfield mob? Should we be worried about the Bakersfield mob? Through the political system. Not unlike, you know, George Santos, who we can't really criticize because, you know, they never throw stones at one another because they all live in glass houses, right? Mm-hmm. And so, with Gates, you know, what makes Gates interesting is he never tells you what he really wants. And I think that that is kind of, like, frightening in a certain sense because we're used to people just, like, giving it all away, right? We're used to, like, the confessional camera, right? Like, in the sitcom where people just kind of, like, lay out what they really think. And, and like, that's not happening here, so it's deeply frustrating and, and you know, disturbing in a, in a way, right? But, but, like, as somebody who knows him, I mean, his attitude was, this is an opportunity to basically smoke out everyone on the Kevin McCarthy question of whether or not we are going to have a criminal guy run the, the, the sort of speakership. And of course it's personal. I mean, Palmer Lucky is one of Kevin McCarthy's largest donors. Palmer Lucky is the brother-in-law of Matt Gates. Right. Uh, you know, Ginger Lucky being, being Matt Gates' wife. Uh, Palmer Lucky, of course, is heavily dependent on Kevin McCarthy getting in there so that he can get, you know, military contracts and other things from the border, right? They're trying to grift off of the U.S. border. Um, the sort of Republican, you know, world is trying to grift off of the U.S. border. So there's that element of it. So there's the sort of business side, personal, you know, side. There's also just the generational aspects. I mean, Gates is, you know, essentially a sort of older millennial. Um, you know, I think McCarthy is peak Gen X. 
right? And, and so you sort of have that dynamic as well. And then you have, um, you know, Gates is both supporting Trump, but also burying Trump in a way, right? Because he's putting up Trump as Speaker of the House of Material, and he's the only person to vote for him, right? And, like, that video of him nominating Trump is, of course, going to be used when Matt eventually runs for governor of Florida and all the redneck areas that love Trump in kind of the same way that the black... Yeah, so initially I thought, oh, that'd be awesome if uh, Donald Trump became Speaker of the House. But then I realized being Speaker of the House requires all sorts of organization that uh, Donald Trump just does not seem capable of. Black loved Obama, right? Um, and so that was very, like, performative, too, in a way. So in, in a certain sense, though, you know, we smoked a lot of people out, right? Like, we see, you know, Dan Crenshaw losing his patience and, like, calling people terrorists and enemies, right? Um, sort of like, you know, which is sort of always the, the neocon kind of approach just to basically make everyone an enemy and you know he loses his committee or he doesn't end up becoming the head of homeland security which happened the other day and then you have the kind of people who are like probably spooks probably feds still within the republican coalition that like don't really want to vote for mccarthy because they know that like it's going to go very poorly but then he figures out kind of like weird ways of buying them off and he sort of saw one by one they fell i mean earlier we had we had olivia beavers um you know you know point out that this gop billionaire uh thomas Peter, Peter Fee, is that how you say his name? He's a, he's a Hungarian-born billionaire, you know, has large mob ties, very plugged in with the kind of, like, a high finance world. And he's, like, sending these people who are the 20 holdouts against McCarthy, he's sending them a text message basically saying that if you don't vote for Kevin, we're going to, like, primary you and take you out, right? Oh, I, I saw that, yeah. And so, it's, like, big donors or something. Yes, big donors. Talk, yeah. <laughs> right, and it's, like, and it's, like, these are the kind of people that we're talking about and dealing with. And, of course... Um, you know, very old world kind of thing. And, you know, Gates just texted me really interesting numbers from CBS poll. 64% of GOP voters approved of the speaker's turmoil last week. Makes sense. As one's so does Matt Gates realize that he's texting his friend Charles Johnson, who's currently in dialogue with uh, Richard Spencer? Again, told me Gates has more fans in their district than Kevin McCarthy. So really, it just comes down, to, it's true. comes down to like just basic bitch. You know, who's more popular and who's, who's going to be the real leader. And then, finally, from Matt's perspective, I mean, we've talked, I mean, I've written about this and talked about this, but Matt was, was targeted by the Israelis uh, in large measure uh, because of his vote against the Iran war. He was one of three Republicans to oppose going to war in Iran. The Israelis did not like that under Netanyahu. They wanted their war with Trump. And, and Matt was very steadfast in opposing that. Wait, when did we vote on going to war in Iran? I don't recall that vote. And I, I suspect that the Israelis as a collective are not... They're strongly opposed to Matt Gates. Matt met with the president, the President Trump, many, many times to try to dissuade him from that. Ultimately prevailed. And they sort of set about targeting him over his, shall we say, um, Hunter Biden-esque, not quite, maybe, but sort of like heterosexual republicanism, which is, of course, a contradiction in terms, recently. Wow, I didn't know that Matt Gates was heterosexual. They sort of came at him with everything they had. And, of course, it led to Bill Barr, who has his own connections with the Israelis, through his father and through his, you know, through his Opus Dei connections. Um, and it led to him sort of open... Oh, yeah, Opus Dei. We, we all know that Opus Dei, this Roman Catholic organization, absolutely in bed with Israel. Failing to prosecute Matt under the Biden years, you know, under the Biden government. So first order business of the Biden government was declining to prosecute Congressman Matt Gates. And so what's interesting to me about all this is that by basically having a high drama in the, in, in the you know, speaker's fight, Matt essentially transitions from basically being this guy who, you know, all the bots say that he flips with 17-year-olds. Um, you know, he transitions from that to basically being seen favorably by, by the base of the Republican Party, which is exactly the position you want to be in if you want to be governor or even president. Right. Uh, also, it, it's MAGA getting away from the GOP. I mean, that, that's interesting about that poll. I'll just, I'll just take his word for it, that a very strong majority supported the speaker's battle. Uh, but it was denounced over and over again by Fox News. I, I think Tucker might have 
kind of play a little both sides or something like that. The important thing to understand about Fox is that... Yeah, Tucker thought that this uh, week-long Republican fight over who would become the speaker, he didn't think it was so bad. He just thought it was democracy in action and that it would make everybody better. Is that Fox... You know, has recently taken a hundred million dollars from the Bank of China. You know, Rupert Murdoch is now in his nineties, right? So like he's no spring chicken anymore. And then they of course have the Dominion lawsuit, you know, coming for them. Right. Like million dollar lawsuit. Yeah, yeah, I mean it will bankrupt Fox if if you know it, I mean I've been following the filings of that and at pretty much every single level Fox has lost every single motion. Mm-hmm. So I think we're gonna look back at the Dominion lawsuit in much the same way we look at McDeal's fight with Gawker, right? As sort of a a sort of counterintelligence measure masquerading as a litigation fight. Sure. Yeah, but Fox is a thousand times bigger than Gawker and has a thousand times more resources to deal with the Dominion lawsuit. Like, they'll settle when they need to. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, you look at Hannity, Hannity's interview where he admits, or he's deposed, he admits that basically he was lying the whole time. He always believed that Joe Biden was really elected. And that is just so revealing of the Boomer Fox person, right? Um, and you can kind of see that with, like, the Lauren Boebert interview where Hannity is sort of beating up on this, like, 34-year-old model. Yeah, you don't have to be a member of the House of Representatives to be the Speaker of the House of Representatives, as I understand it. And yeah. he's beating her up in like this very grotesque way uh, because he's clearly like being told that he needs to be, you know, a pro Kevin McCarthy. Um, so I'm not sure he's saying that the Dominion lawsuit will, will sink Fox. Obviously, it won't do that, but he, he's saying that it's a, a national intelligence hit against. Gawker or against Fox, which I'm highly skeptical of all his cons- his uh, conspiracy theorizing here, but maybe there's some gold in all the dross. So anyway, it's just interesting. And of course, Gates' speech about Kevin believing in nothing is of course exactly right, right about the modern Republican Party, which yeah. is they, they don't believe in anything other than, like, the graph continuing. Yes. Well, what do you think about this, though? Uh, couldn't you make another argument that Gates' revolution was deconstructive of the state kind of on a, in a way that it wasn't quite appreciated at the time. You know, Fox's criticism was basically, this looks bad. You know, that, that was pretty much it. But there's a kind of deeper criticism. I mean, there's going to be, I think in June or something, a debt ceiling issue. And, you know, usually that's something people talk about. And they're like, you know, oh my God, we're 30 trillion in debt or whatever. And then they just kind of move forward, you know, kicking the can once again. But, you know, actually... I, and I don't think we're going to have, like, hyperinflation the next morning or something like that, or, or global instability the next morning, but, like, not going through the debt ceiling in a regular, seemingly responsible manner, that, that actually is very significant. There is discussion, there's always been discussion of reducing entitlements, it, it, Social Security being the ultimate third rail in the Republican Party. I mean, was this... When was the last time 40 Dovin with a minion? Uh, about a month, right? There weren't any minyanim to be found in, in central Queensland. So, yeah, someone would have to resign from the House of Representatives and then Donald Trump could be appointed, right? But there's no way that Donald Trump would be cut out to be Speaker of the House. just requires too much organization. It's a way of a a certain class, a certain donor group that really wants to deconstruct the administrative state, as Bannon calls it, or the entitlement state. And using populism as as a hammer to achieve that. But that's not something that I support. Uh, for what it's worth. But it, it does seem like there might be a kind of darker element to it. No, nor do I. And, and I mean, look, I mean, Kevin McCarthy raised half a billion dollars, right? And essentially just got a five-seat majority in the House, right? Yeah. And everybody knows that going into 2024... Well, Republicans still got, you know, more than one percentage point more votes in, in the midterms than the, the Democrats. So 
wasn't quite the disaster that we're being told. There was a significant you know, Republican turnout. Uh, Democrats turned out as well, but overall, as I understand it, Republicans got 1% more votes in the midterm. Forest, you, will, you will lose the speakership. Like it, it is more or less a guarantee. And that's before we're talking about various members who may well be indicted. You know, and George Santos is subject of domestic, state, I mean, local, state, federal, and international inquiries right now. Given his yeah. Yeah. He had no money and then donated 700000 to his own campaign over the course of a year. I mean, it stinks to high heaven. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious that he is sort of construct of a form. But, right. uh, but anyway, so, you know, I know Hakeem Jeffries, one of Hakeem Jeffries' best friends. We were chatting the other day. And his view is basically like, look, Hakeem thinks he could well be speaker by the end of the year. He thinks there may be enough indictments, resignations, what have you, among Republicans, that he could just sort of like walk into it. And I kind of laughed about it, but I don't think he's wrong. You know, um, we just kind of look like district by district. And yeah, I think there's a real there's a real question about some you know, special elections that could be held. Uh, there, there's sort of like there's lots of sort of questions there that could be approached now. In- yeah, that's kind of scary. So Republicans only have a five seat majority. Right, Democrats only need to what, pick up three, three of those, right, to, to swing it to what, four or five, to swing it to Hakeem Jeffries and the Democrats would regain control of the lower chamber. In normal societies, when a party fails to, fails to perform, right, in normal parliamentary systems, right, normal countries, when they fail to perform, you know, even below, you know, below expectations, there's a sacking of the leader of the party, right? right. Um, this is sort of like, but we don't really have that system. And so there's a way of looking at like the Gates-McCarthy fight as basically what we have to resort to when when we don't have parties that actually discipline themselves. And, you know, McCarthy belongs very much to the donor, to the billionaire class. Um, he doesn't make any... So, yeah, the parties have a lot more power in Australia and England than, than in the United States. He, he basically sees himself as their kind of handmaid. And you can see that with, you know, his employees who've gone to go work for Silver Lake, a very Chinese front, you know, firm. And so you can see this kind of, you know, throughout his many, many years of public life, where he's always on the side of organized crime, always on the side of the Chinese, generally. Um, wait, 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 wait. So he just tosses this off that uh, Kevin McCarthy's always on the side of organized crime, but uh, it doesn't seem to provide uh, any evidence for such outrageous accusations. And, you know, he installed a Chinese spy, this guy Peter Kuo, at the California GOP so he could give his wife a no-show job in the California GOP. And, of course, you know, people noticed, like, you know, he's hugging Marjorie Taylor Greene, she who was recently divorced and who, you know, not even a year ago opposed him for the speakership, right? And he's not wearing his wedding ring and all the photos where he's hugging her. And, and so it's just, like, people know. What are you like, suggesting? I mean, it's pretty obvious that they're having sex. Um, okay. And, like, you know, which is, you know, I, I, on a healthy level, I, I, I support that. You know, like, I think it's good to have a heterosexual Republican Speaker of the House who's not a child monster. Like Denny right. right? Um, but it is yeah. kind of gross to think about. But it, is gro- it is gross, but it's also very revealing, right? right. And so, like, if someone said there's a sex scandal going on with, like, you know, Penelope Cruz, there's a love triangle between Penelope Cruz, Margot Robbie, and Ryan Gosling, I'd be like, ooh, I don't read about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you would read that. Like, story, Kevin right? McCarthy screwing MTG. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, want, you want the aesthetic sex scandal, but you get Margot Robbie and Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you want the AOC sex scandal, but you never quite get it. Oh, right. It's yeah. the first Or the Annapolis Luna sex scandal. Um, but anyway, so now that we've debased ourselves, but basically, you know, the point... And the chat says, this guy, Charles Johnson, he's just a, a Twitter troll. He's a Twitter troll who often breaks big stories. ...thing was, like, making everybody reveal their positions, right? And basically make, making everyone... He, he's not a nobody. He's good friends with Matt Gates. He introduced Matt Gates to his wife. ...invisible 
into the electorate and sort of moving past Trump, past McCarthy, into this sort of new new generation of, of sort of like of leadership. I mean, there was a sort of high drama moment where Gates basically took it away from McCarthy, you know, one last time, right, where he, he basically waited so he could be the deciding vote and then sort of stab Kevin, right? Mm-hmm. And you can just sort of see it on C-SPAN how exciting, how dramatic it was. And like, this is sort of like, we're not accustomed to this in the, in the sort of bloodless, passionless, you know, uh, you know, politics of our, of our, uh, you know, of our Congress, right? Where basically right. it's just like, how many trillions are you going to vote on? Now, does this actually imperil the economics of the United States, or the sort of public finance of the United States? I don't think so. I mean, honestly, like, the U.S. dollar is extremely strong. There's all these terrible countries around the world that are seemingly imploding. So their rich people are decamping for the United States with money in tow. Um, you know, you just sort of, like, look at the fundamentals of our economy. And if it's not a Chinese sector, you know, like the tech industry, you know, commercial real estate, right, which are both heavily backed by the Chinese, more or less the economy is, like, going along, you know, like prices are kind of higher than they should be, but maybe that's because of consolidation, you know, of a lot of our, of our uh, agricultural and, um, you know, and, and sort of like, you know, consumer goods world. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, we were all told that we were going to like be in a major recession by now, by the Republican Party, and it's just like kind of not true, like prices of housing is coming down in, in a large extent. Um, you know, there's just like, there's a lot of like positive things. I mean, Biden, Trump talked about like bringing all these factories to the Midwest, and like Biden has actually allocated funding for it. Trump talked about infrastructure, Biden actually like got an infrastructure deal done. So there's just like a certain sense in which like, Biden has basically taken a lot of the thunder out of the people who actually want to like find solutions to make America actually great again. And he sort of divided the people who are just sloganeering or the people who believe in nothing. And, you know, it's telling to me that the first actions of the new Congress is to gut the ethics committee, right? That, that was sort of action number one. And action number two was to basically get rid of all these IRS agents because essentially the Republican Party is filled with a bunch of tax cheats. Like, how revealing, you know? I mean, how obvious, but how revealing. Right. But I don't know. I mean, what is your sense? I mean, looking at it just sort of like... I mean, what is your sense of, like, who the real leader is of the Republican Party now? Um, is there one? I mean, how, how should we think about this? I don't think there is one, because even... Yeah, I think Donald Trump is still the leader until he's dethroned, I assume, by Ron DeSantis. Underestimated the willingness of the Frankenstein's monster to move beyond Frankenstein. I was about to say Frankenstein. I was... Uh, <laughs> So, saw some highlights of Mel Brooks' uh, classic movie. Um, what I mean by that is that, you know, in 2015 and for the first half of 2016, Trump was an antagonistic force to the RNC, but also to Fox News. I mean, remember that Megyn Kelly thing that Trump, the battle that he won effectively by just being a uh, boorish jerk and talking about menstruation or whatever he accused her of, um, that was a setup to end him basically. They're like, oh, look, we can have Megyn Kelly. She's super popular. She'll kind of call upon the romantic patriarchal instincts of Republicans and accuse him of being mean to women and things like that. And he just played it off by being even yet more mean. And um, he won those battles. But there there was an antagonistic force against him. By the summer of 2016, that had flipped. And and Fox News really was, you know, Trump propaganda, basically. And uh, for most of his term, or or most all of his term, effectively, it, it operated like that. And I see even now, you know, Trump has been wounded, maybe fatally, just due to all of it that's happened over the past six years and he's kind of like frankenstein's monster is almost like moving off him you know they're doing things in the name of him but things that he explicitly does not support and they kind of think that they can move away from him like it's, it's really about us and he told them that it's about it's about you they hate me because they hate you kind of stuff he told them all these things and it's kind of happening in a way that i didn't predict i i kind of was one of these guys who said there's no Trumpism without Trump. I, I kind of still believe that, but um, I, 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 on, on, at least in the short term, I, I'm, I'm wrong. I mean, they're moving away from him. I don't think there's any leadership in the Republican Party. It's certainly not Kevin McCarthy. It's dubiously Trump. And it might even be someone like Gates at this point. Um, so I, I think it's it's absolutely in flux, whereas the with the DNC, it's not at all. 
Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I think um, so. It's always challenging, right? Because like you know, I posted a picture of myself with Gates. I mean, we've known each other for quite a while. Um, you know, I introduced him to his wife. Um, you know, we are we are friends, right? But we're also like. Um, you know, one always has to be objective about these things, right? And so for me, for me, I just look at it very, very, very simply, right? Which is that in Republican politics, or in politics generally, you're, you're sort of rewarded for two things. Can you move votes, or, or can you move money, or can you, you know, can you do both, right? The people yeah. who do both are the ones who end up in positions of power. And so Trump basically said, like, hey, I want this speaker fight to conclude. I want Kevin to win it. And he moved no votes. Yeah. And that, to me, is the tell that he's done, right? He, he may be a cultural yeah. figure, but he's not a political figure anymore. Um, and we just need to kind of accept... That he's going to be the kind of figure, you know, maybe like a pope of conservatism, or he's going to be just the sort of like, uh, you know, old man yelling at the TV. Um, now, I think we will all, have, many of us will look back on this period actually thinking very. Yeah, it's hard to look at Trump's performance over the past few months and think that he's serious about running for, for president. Uh, on the other hand, it's it's hard to discount him. Very fondly of Trump, simply because you know we we want to believe in an institution of the American presidency that that you know ennobles people, even somebody as crash and crass and as boorish as Trump. Right? We want to believe we, we basically like time heals all wounds. Right? We'll remember all the funny things he said, but like not having sold out the government to Jared Kushner. Right? Like there's a lot of things we'll just sort of like look the other way on because it's like it's kind of horrifying in a way to think about. Um, I, so, I feel a certain nostalgia for for Trump because I I feel I don't know maybe perhaps I pull for the underdog a little bit, but it's like. Whatever you want to say about this grotesque individual, he's the one who did it. Like, he's, you guys were just kind of pitter-pattering along. He actually, like, went nuts on stage and called Mexicans rapists. He talked about the wall. He turned you into a movement. He threatened the world order with all of his nonsense. And you're kind of not appreciating the degree to which all political movements, or at least successful movements, have to have an incarnation of the movement in a single individual. He was that, and now you're pretending like it's more than him. I don't. I, I have a certain. I, I, it's weird because I, I was very anti-Trump for a while, for longer than I was pro-Trump, um, and I, I still am. But I, I have a certain appreciation for this. I mean, there is something very American about him, right? Yeah. That we don't really want to talk about, right? That, that basically yeah. the con man as president, who like cons himself, is like. There's nothing more American than that. Yeah, he's Kane. Um, he's Citizen Kane. It's the best. Yeah, but it's also participatory and fun and exciting. And I think for for a lot of people, that's enough. You know, um, and it was quite nice to see somebody go up there and just blow up piety after piety of the GOP. I mean, I enjoyed that very much. But the problem is that, you know, in the final analysis, it comes down to like the man in the chair, you know, has to make decisions. And, you know, he wasn't, there was a certain sense in which he was just playing. Yeah, and in the final analysis, the problem is Donald Trump is not very good at running things. That's the problem. Being president. Yes. And that was fun until it was horrifying. You know, um, and I do think, I think you're right. I mean, look, I, I, Gates said to me quite a while ago, he said that to be to be a ex-president is a far better job than to be president. And I don't think Trump actually really wants to be president. It's just a negotiating gambit that he's playing. Yeah. Um, I think that's basically right. You know, I think that that is basically uh, where we are. And I think, you know, Trump has long been a federal informant. We talked about that in our last conversation. Um, I think he's probably still a federal informant. And the degree to which, you know, the conservatives are sort of freaking out about classified documents in the Biden, you know, outfit. First of all, we way overclassify everything in our society, which everyone knows. Uh, you know, there's something like 3 million people that have class, class you know, have the ability to get it, classified documents. Um, that's, you know, that's, a, that's functionally, like, way too many people. And then, of course, like, the real insights in our society come from open source research, which isn't classified, right, doing forensic accounting, which isn't classified, from facial recognition, you know, from satellites, all of which are, like, increasingly not classified. So I just think, like, there's a certain sense in which, like, Trump is basically this kind of amazing cultural figure that made a lot of the world more exciting and interesting and 
kind of like revealing in a way. I mean, I think the Dave Chappelle ske- sketch where he's talking about Trump as an honest liar is kind of exactly right. And Kevin is, of course, like, you know, just a standard liar. So he's just not as appealing. I mean, his own mentor is calling him like a serial liar in the pages of The New Yorker, right? Like, <laughs> That's not a big deal, right, that Kevin McCarthy's mentor in, in Congress is calling him a liar. I mean, people fall out in, in politics and in life all the time. Have I ever seen Syriana? Yes. So, Syriana. That's when you know you fucked up. I mean, forgive me for being crass, but like, if the person who gave you your political start and built your... I've fallen out with people who mentored me. Uh, if you've fallen out with a mentor, it shows that you're, among other reasons, that you're independent, that you're not slavish, that uh, you're not just uh, 100% predictable and that you have other values that are higher than simply remaining in your mentor's good graces. Well, your career is publicly disparaging you in the sort of like erudite publication of record. Um, and he's like just telling it like it is. And then the party as a whole dominates you to be speaker. That's very telling, you know, um, it's very telling of where the party is. And, you know, one of my colleagues, you know, from my, from my venture investing, we were chatting about this the other day. And he... Okay, so interesting conversation, you know, pretty wild, wacky, uh, hard to take a lot of it seriously. But uh, still, in all the nonsense there, you know, it sounded to me like uh, 70% nonsense, uh, 30% quality analysis uh, there from uh, Charles Johnson talking with uh, Richard Spencer. I'm going to end the stream here. Talk to you later.